Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to remind you that my short story is available for free at johntilton.com. If you sign up for my newsletter, I'll send you both the ebook and audiobook of Doomed Dune. In this middle grade adventure, a girl named Melina travels to a forbidden landmark guarded by tyrannical robots, but her life turns upside down when she discovers the true reason it's off limits. Discover Doom Doom Secret by heading over to johntilton.com. That's J-O-N-T-I-L-T-O-N.com. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Cause of Craft. I'm your host, John Tilton. Why do we create? Where do our ideas come from? What does our craft say about us? These are the ideas we explore here on the show. Each episode, I interview a different guest, from writers and painters to musicians and filmmakers. Together, we investigate the creative process and the reasons behind why we create. Homer, Plato, Cicero, Ancient Greece, Rome, and more. A list of important people, places, and works from the past could go on forever. But why are these ancient things so important? And when it comes time to study them, where do we even start? This week, my guest is Dr. David Noe. He teaches Latin and co-hosts a podcast that covers everything classical. He shares what's all included under that classical umbrella, as well as what questions to ask yourself when considering which works to study. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider sharing your favorite episodes with a friend. It's the best way to help the podcast grow, and I appreciate your support. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to the show, David. It's great to talk with you. Thanks, John, for having me. It's good to talk to you, too. Now, you're an expert of all things classics. We can get into everything that includes in a bit. But to start, why are all these old ancient things so important to continue studying today? Right. Well, that's a complicated question. I'll try to give a very simple answer. I think it's important because uh, beauty, generally, is important to human beings. Uh, I'm a Christian, a theist, and you know, I, I think that God made us in a certain way to appreciate the world that he has set up. And this not only includes things like mountains and trees, but it includes a bird song. It includes the, the products of human civilization. Uh, and so everything that individuals have created, I, I find that is interesting. And the literature and the artwork of antiquity I just find the most compelling uh, of all human creations, really. You talk about the beauty of the mountains and scenery and things like this, things that are created by God versus here, the classics, all things created by man. Right. Do you see a relationship between those things when you talk about the beauty? Like, do you find that people long ago were sort of reaching toward the beauty that they found in life or were they exploring something new? Right. Well, I think that uh, all human beings have a natural desire for what is beautiful. That's a part of our character and design, how we were stamped or imprinted. And uh, the ancients are different, perhaps, than our contemporaries in a couple of respects. Uh, First is uh, the Greeks in particular are often called big children. Uh, So what characterizes a child? Well, uh, a lot of curiosity, a kind of uh, credulity about the world, some would say gullible, but um, the Greeks had a real strong desire uh, to figure out the world, and they were curious about everything, how everything worked. And so I think that intellectual inquisitiveness is stamped on all of the products of Greco-Roman antiquity. The second element I would say is that ancient cultures generally believed that the world of nature was normative So they had different opinions about what nature teaches us, but all of the ancient philosophical systems believed that nature has normativity for human behavior. So you want to know what's moral, you study the world of nature. You want to know what's 
what's right and proper. You have to see how the natural world is constructed. And that's very different than, than moderns, and I think that has implications for the works of art produced by those cultures. There's a wide range of timeline here. So when does classics start? Is there a year or era? And why is that era your focus of study and the focus of study for many who are thinking about these things when, right. like, what did they get in that era for the first time that made it such a landmark era? Does that make sense? Sure. So I think you can date the beginning of the classical world and uh, there are subdivisions, but you can date it to around 850 before Christ, 850 BC or BCE. And that is a, about the earliest date for the emergence of the Homeric poems. And uh, of course, that would be called, you know, archaic or pre-archaic Greece, uh, but I can count it as classical. And uh, I would say it extends until the death of St. Augustine, which is 430 AD. So those are the, the terminus, the termini that I think are really useful. Now, before the time of Homer, you have the Minoan and Mycenaean cultures. And of course, after the death of Augustine, uh, you have the emergence of the Byzantine Empire in the East, and you have the continuation of Roman themes in the West. But in terms of classical identity, about 850 BC to 430 AD. And what marks those times off? Well, first of all, it's just geography. Um, so literacy is rediscovered in Greece after a three to 400 year period of no literacy. And uh, the, the two Homeric poems set out uh, a full-blown ready-made culture that uh, first the Greeks adopted and with all of their colonization around the Mediterranean extended that culture. Uh, and then the Romans adopted many of the norms of Greek culture. So that's that's the coherence. It starts with Homer, and then you know that an original root branches out and uh, goes in many different directions. Based on your answer and what I've seen is that all these things are super important and very interesting to study. And so I found that it's a little bit frustrating that sort of modern thought is that these things aren't as important as we used to view them. And even there's universities that are downsizing departments that study these things. There are people who kind of want to throw it out altogether and right. start afresh, which I'm not sure how you do when it's so embedded into the culture already. But why do you think something that's so underlying to our society is getting pushed to the side a bit? Sure. Well, I have two theories, and I don't know if this can be proven, uh, but I'm convinced it's true. And the first has to do with the democratization of education. Um, so maybe that's a surprising answer. But if you start with the premise that everybody is supposed to go to college, or nearly everybody, uh, then uh, college, of course, has become uh, enormously expensive. And um, there are so many different elements of a undergraduate's experience during that four to five years that have little to do with education, but more to do with the transition to adulthood, all of these costs are layered into a student's education. And, you know, you can test this against basic statistics and data since uh, 1980, 1985. Uh, tuition has risen and room and board uh, astronomically with respect to inflation. So now the prospect of education is enormously expensive. There's there's the first element, and it's partly because uh, there are so many dollars to be chased. The second element then is we have a very pragmatic society on the whole, 
an extraordinarily wealthy society. And um, ironically, uh, in a, such a wealthy society, things that are simply a matter of leisure become somehow less important. It's a very difficult thing to convince an undergraduate that they should go into $100,000 worth of debt in order to uh, read poems uh, written by Sappho or to learn what is the difference between an archaic uh, Kore and you know a statue by Polycleides. So those things are inherently important, but how can you convince an undergrad um, who has been, um, I guess, conditioned toward pragmatism that they should spend a lot of money to gain those unique and frankly impractical skills? Uh, so when I try to advocate for the classics, I have stopped advocating for their practicality. Instead, I say, um, we do in our lives all kinds of things that are impractical, like listening to podcasts, watching Hulu and Netflix, uh, seasoning our food. Um, so why would we be pragmatic when it comes to literature in particular? Uh, and so I just, I don't accept the pragmatic argument, but I think that's what's driving the majority of the decline in the popularity of classics. Is sort of your outlook on this why you've pursued a couple of things online? So you do teach Latin online and you also host a podcast that talks about these things. Right. Was that kind of a natural solution to you to pursue these new channels that are available to us? Yeah, well, I don't I don't know if it's going to be a solution, <laughs> but it is a it's a natural I would say move for me. There is still a large appetite for the classics in the world, but a lot of it exists outside of academia. And uh, I really enjoy, of course, teaching the very fine points of my craft to, um, to interested persons, but I would like to reach a broader audience as well. And uh, thanks to you know the wonders of the internet, uh, the market for classics is very broad, but it's just not perhaps concentrated in uh, your local college or university. You mentioned how you have found interest on the podcast and other things like this. Do you think some of that is because of all these kids who have been enjoying Percy Jackson over the years growing up, you know, more of the classic mythology? Or do you think that's stemming from a number of things? Where, where do you think that interest comes from? Right. I do think that's a large part of it. I think another part is a lot of our listeners are individuals who teach Latin or who are teaching their own children Latin and the classics. So they have a, a natural, you could almost say a practical interest. I think another reason is that, um, you know, I'll let the audience be the judge of this, uh, but we actually love what we're doing. We really enjoy the classics. We think they are interesting. So we talk about the classics the way some people talk about sports. And uh, I think hopefully that is a kind of contagious enthusiasm. I mean, I like sports, but nobody's going to um, listen to me talk about, you know, professional baseball, but I know a lot about Plato and Homer. So uh, hopefully that that catches on in a kind of infectious way. And it's interesting, too, that you bring up kind of the modern day example, because something that I was thinking of when you were saying that is, well, people might say, oh, it can't be like that because there's no it's like a set time period in history. Mm -hmm. Whereas if there's a sport or new media, it's always coming out. It's always fresh every day. But there's a way to make all that classical stuff new and exciting because there's so much that even if you're really into it, 
you won't have been able to go through hundreds and hundreds of years of material that people have made. So it's almost like just the length of time period that it is would allow it to have such a diverse set of things to explore. For sure. I think that's very well said. So not only um, is the classical corpus pretty large, uh, even though less than 10% of all ancient titles um, have survived intact. So for every 100 titles we have for some some pieces of literature, only 10 of them survive intact. Still, the classical corpus is large, but people have been interacting with the classical corpus uh, for you know more than 2,000 years. So uh, I was reading Augustine's Confessions recently uh, with some with my family, and uh, Augustine's complaining about having to read Homer, and he's complaining about how he loves uh, Virgil, and he cries over the death of Dido, but he doesn't cry over his own sins. Uh, that's a spoiler alert if you've never read the Aeneid. Dido uh, dies in Book Four, so not not only do we get to deal with Virgil directly, and then we can talk about Augustine's reaction. Uh, to this fantastic story and up through the Renaissance and uh, on and on it goes. And I guess this is also a good time to kind of break down the umbrella of classics and what all fits under here. So it, the language and the stories, it, like what are all the different facets to explore in classics? Right. Well, again, I think it starts out first with chronology and geography. So everything that happened in the Mediterranean basin between 850 BC and 430 AD. That's the classical world. Then within that, there are a number of subdisciplines. You know, there's the study of coins, numismatics, there's the study of inscriptions, there's the study of um, paleography, ancient writings, there's papyrology. I was trained as a philosopher and a philologist. That's my training. So, um, studied, you know, Greek and Latin uh, very in intensively. But then I didn't specialize in poetry, although I've read a lot of it. I specialized in the thought of uh, Plato and Cicero. And so, you know, there are a number of different sub uh, studies. There's archaeology, there's architecture. It's just very rich because of the, the geographical and um, chronological limitations. You know, that's the, those are the boundaries. Um, so it's really impossible to be an expert in all of those things, uh, but there's plenty to hold one's interest. And talking about the geography of everything, have you visited these locations in the past and how has that informed how you view what you study? Right. Yes, I've visited many of these locations, not as many as I'd like, but I've been to uh, both Italy and Greece multiple times. I haven't been to uh, Asia Minor, Asia Minor, which today is Turkey. And so that's a place I'd really like to go. Uh, I haven't been to Crete or to Sicily. And uh, those are, you know, very important sites I would like to get to soon. But um, it definitely has influenced the way I see the literature. You just have a sense of connection uh, to the persons who lived in the places whose, uh, you know, whose works you study. It just gives it a sense of, um, it's kind of like going to a cemetery, right? I haven't met all my ancestors, obviously, because they died long before I was born. But when I go to the cemetery, well, you know, there's the gravestone for my grandmother and my grandfather. But then then there are um, great uncles and aunts I didn't know. Uh, but yet now I have some tenuous connection to them because this is their final resting spot. So if you like cemeteries, you know, you're going <laughs> to, and I do, you're going to like visiting these ancient sites. This is where real people lived and died. And uh, 
it's a really uh, great way to exercise your imagination. Well, especially with something that's so like there's such an academic approach to all this, right? Like there's mm -hmm. all the, you're reading a lot, you're studying things. And so to have a concrete place to ground everything, I would imagine also makes it more real. Like it's not just something that happened in the history book. It's, this is where it happened. Yes, definitely. Yeah, that's very well said. And I think that's exactly right. For someone who's curious about reading classical literature specifically, what's a good place to start? Again, with all the history, this hundreds and hundreds of years, it's a little daunting to just be like, oh, I'm going to pick this up and start reading it. Which one should someone read first if they haven't really explored these works before? Right. Great question. Well, I think a person first needs to ask some questions of himself or herself, specifically, why am I doing this? Right. If you're doing this uh, to make yourself smarter, to look better at parties, to gain wealth and influence, <laughs> those kinds of things, you're not going to make much progress. I don't think that's a those are good reasons necessarily to pursue it. If you're doing it from a sense of shame and embarrassment, everybody seems to know these things except except for me. Uh, again, not a good reason to pursue it. So, so ask yourself first, why am I doing this? And if the answer is, I am interested in the lives and histories of other peoples and places, that's a good answer. I love beauty. I want to hear things that are interesting. Once you got that down, then just say, well, what specifically am I interested in? Do I like accounts of warfare? Do I like political intrigue? Do I like romance and broken hearts? Uh, what is it about literature and human experience that interests me? When you have that down, well, then you can get more specific, right? So you want to study ethics. So you're going to go to Plato. Uh, you like dense, complicated narratives. Uh, you're going to read Homer and, of course, the, the Iliad and Odyssey. Maybe you like a kind of irreverent humor that's always gentle. Well, then you're going to read Ovid. Maybe you like political intrigue and uh, embarrassing uh, exploits, you know, of a kind of a, a political savant where well, you're going to read Cicero, right? Or maybe his letters. So it really just depends upon what one's interest is. So I think, again, why am I doing this? And then, and then secondly, what in particular am I interested in about the human experience? Then you can, you can just, uh, you know, focus your interest at that point and then just keep going. Yeah. I love that because it reminds me of how in modern times too, there's thinking about kids and picking up books to read. And sometimes a kid might think, oh, I don't like reading at all. Right. But it might just be that they haven't picked up a book that really fits with what they would love to read. Right. And so I like that that same idea applies to this, where again, there's so much stuff that really there probably is. There's probably a classic out there for you, you know, and it's just a matter of, of understanding what is out there. Absolutely. For sure. And your podcast is a great way to hear about these different things because you guys cover such a broad scope of everything. Right. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your podcast and where people can find it? Oh, I'd love to, John. Thanks. So first of all, it's called Ad Nauseam. And uh, you have to spell the nauseam with a V, N-A-V-S-E-A-M. Otherwise, you'll be sent to a pretty disturbing podcast about violence and all kinds of things that I don't endorse. But uh, if you go N-A-V-S-E-A-M, uh, and then we just jokingly talk about the classics, and we try to release one episode per week. We're on uh, number 81 right now. And uh, I think it works because Jeff and I are good friends and we're quite different. You know, I'm a little more straight laced, buttoned up. He's a lot more interested in pop culture 
and uh, we just we just both love the classics. So uh, we're doing a current series on Ovid. We've touched on Homer, of course, uh, Cicero, quite quite a broad range. And uh, I think you know, if it's not interesting, why would people listen, right? So oftentimes, classicists they kind of shoot themselves in the foot, right? They're teaching the most interesting material in history, but they don't seem to have any real love for it. And uh, the consequence is that other people don't like it, you know? Uh, so, so we're not trying to do that. <laughs> we're trying to do the opposite. And you also teach Latin online. Now, kind of two parts of that. A, where can people find that? And B, what reasons do people have to study Latin specifically um, besides becoming a Latin teacher? <laughs> right, right. So they can go to latinperdiem.com, L-A-T-I-N-P-E-R-D-I-E-M, latinperdiem.com. And that'll take you to my YouTube channel. And uh, I've got more than 1,850 uh, freely available Greek and Latin lessons. So I don't know how many hours of free expert instruction that is. Uh, but if you, you know, if you just have um, access to YouTube, you have a pencil and you have a composition notebook, you could spend about a year um, looking at all of that material, at the end of which you would know a lot of Latin, I think, if you're, if you're diligent, right? Uh, and a lot of Greek there as well. Uh, you could also sign up for a class if you want to interact with me directly rather than just in a recorded, um, in a recorded fashion. As for reasons that people study Latin, it varies. Some do it for a, a fairly pragmatic purpose. Yeah. I got I got to do this to complete grad school or seminary. Maybe I want to learn legal or medical terminology. Those are all good reasons. I think a better reason is because one is interested in other people. So everybody's always looking out their window, right? What are my neighbors doing? You know, why are they parked? Why are they parked <laughs> that way? You know, what's what's he doing in his backyard? It's the same kind of thing with literature. You get to snoop on the neighbors and uh, some pretty interesting neighbors, people who have done uh, amazing things, described amazing things. So that's the best reason I would say. Well, great. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about all this. It was a blast. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cause of Craft. You can find links to David's online Latin courses and his podcast Ad Nauseum in the show notes. If you enjoyed this discussion of ancient works, check out episode three with author Fraser Alexander. Much of his work is inspired by the work of Homer, and we talk about why modern readers connect with myths. And for something completely different, try episode 33 with artist Carly Van Eck. We discuss how creating art can help us to process life, especially through its many struggles. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider sharing your favorite episodes with a friend and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Both these things really help the show grow. And if you have feedback, suggestions, or guest recommendations, send an email to john at causeofcrap.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.